0: Hello and welcome to the Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Drew Evans. And I'm Ben Garma. Today on the podcast, we have a roundtable discussion, and we are joined by the wonderful Kate Hayner Slattery. Uh, Kate is best known for being the best prosecution opener at the Shutdown Showdown her senior year. She was also the captain at Northwestern, both her junior and senior year. And she is now the current coach of the Northwestern A-Team, as well as coaching at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. So, Kate, we are so happy to have you on, so happy to have a voice from the Midwest joining us. Uh, But thanks
1: for coming. Thanks so much for having me.
0: All right. So Kate, as you might have guessed, we are going to start this podcast the way we start basically every podcast that we have a guest on. Let's start with your origin story. So what made you start doing Mock Trial?
1: Sure. Um, So I joined Mock Trial kind of by accident. Originally, I, I joined my freshman year of high school in 2011. And I was a very shy freshman who could not talk to anybody, could not talk in front of teachers, but a friend of mine was going to the info session and she was my ride home from school. So I tagged along and kind of before I knew it, I was in over my head and on a team and the rest is history from there. Um, I really stayed in it for the people at first and then gradually fell in love with the activity um, and I was lucky enough to be in a program in my high school that didn't have tryouts because I would have never joined or never made a team if I hadn't had a way to kind of stumble into the activity and discover public speaking along the way. Um, but yeah, so I did that through four years of high school and then went to Northwestern um, where I actually didn't make the team my freshman year because tryouts are competitive and college mock trial is hard. Um, But I stayed kind of peripherally involved in the world for that year, watched some rounds, and then tried out again my sophomore year and joined the team then. Um, So I competed with Northwestern for three years. Uh, After college, I moved up to Wisconsin for work, which has nothing to do with mock trial or trial at all. I do software development. But I wanted to kind of stay involved in mock trial because at that point I was just too hooked. Um, So I started coaching with UW-Madison, And then doing some remote coaching with Northwestern, which was a lot harder last year when everything was normal in person. But this year has actually been really more accessible because I've been able to coach both there and here in Madison. That's kind of how I got involved and what I'm doing now.
0: I will fully say that as someone who also coaches multiple teams in multiple states, not all at the college level, um, it is certainly nice to have everyone be virtual and kind of very convenient for us, so. I hear you on that point for sure.
2: Yeah, we've talked about it a little bit, I think, on previous episodes. But it, that is kind of a, a cool uh, silver lining to the virtual setup. Obviously, it's not ideal and it's very different. But it but it allows things like Kate, what you were talking about with coaching remotely and being able to balance uh, multiple teams. And you know, that's uh, it's an interesting thing that I wonder how much of it will stick around. Once even we go back to in-person, if maybe we've gotten good enough at communicating remotely that, you know, you can continue to coach remotely in a way that maybe we wouldn't have been able to do before we all got experience to this technology. But enough theoretical talk, we've got some actual results to take a look at. It's been a couple of weeks since we last recorded, and so we wanted to start this roundtable episode since we've got... um people who are affiliated with three different programs and have seen several different rounds and several different teams to take a look at some of the recent results over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we're not going to run through every tournament. There's been a ton of tournaments uh, these first couple weekends in November, but we picked out a couple from around the country that we think uh, had noteworthy results. Uh, the big one, of course, is Gamte, the Great American Mock Trial Invitational hosted by Virginia. I would say now that the downtown is no longer in existence, I would... Think it's fair to say that Gamte is universally considered to be the best tournament, invitational-wise in the country. Uh, Gamtee our champion was—I don't know if we should make the same joke that everybody always does. It was our defending national champions, uh, Miami, who went eleven zero and one uh, to take first at Gamte. Chicago went nine and three to take second, and then you saw Duke at eight three and one to take third, and Yale at eight and four to take fourth. A couple other tournaments just to roll through, and then we'll open it to the floor. Uh Yale's A Division, their top division. We saw Wesleyan go 7 and 1 win that tournament. Uh followed closely by NYU also at 7 and 1 and Berkeley, a name you'll hear a couple times on this rundown, took third. Uh looking over more at the Midwest, Iowa's tournament, we had William and Mary win that tournament, 7 and 1, followed up by Florida State also at 7 and 1, and then Southern Methodist at 6 and 2. Uh a West Coast tournament, we had Arizona and again, we've got Berkeley winning that tournament, seven and a half wins. UC Santa Barbara with seven wins. UC Irvine with six and a half wins. And then a couple uh, other tournaments to round things out here had Duke, uh, Duke's tournament. UVA won that, went seven and one. And then there was a four-way tie at six and two after that. Virginia, Miami, Berkeley, and Stanford. Uh, and finally, uh, Kate's excellent program, Northwestern, hosted an absolutely fantastic tournament that we had two teams at uh berkeley won that tournament went eight zero, and then northwestern went six and two and michigan went six and two as well so that was our whole rundown how about uh kate i'll start with you and then we can obviously kick things to drew as well you've been coaching you've been looking around so what stands out to you so far from the results we've seen over the last couple weeks
1: sure um I think there are a couple teams that were really coming out early as powerhouse. I saw Berkeley on a lot of results and that I know they're a strong program, but I hadn't seen them winning a bunch of fall invites before. And that really stuck out to me. I I saw snippets of one of their rounds. I haven't actually seen a full round of theirs, Um, but they played both of the Northwestern fall teams that were at our own invite. So they've kind of beat up our program across the board. And I'm excited to see where they go this year because they definitely have made a strong start. I think also Miami winning Gampty with 11-0 and 1 was pretty stellar. Like that was just so far above the rest of the field there. And to lose half a ballot with that field is really impressive. Miami is always a powerhouse, but this year should be something crazy if they're doing that at an early season tournament.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll say that, uh, I just want to start by, echoing something that Ben said, which is that I'm so grateful to Kate and everyone else at Northwestern for running the tournament they did. They, as I said before, helped out um, a lot of the teams that were going to be at Haverford's tournament. So we're really grateful to them. Um, and and from judging it at a couple rounds, I, I thought it was really well run and a lot of fun to, to be at. I will actually say the Final round at that tournament, which was Berkeley versus Northwestern, which ended up as the top two teams, I was fortunate enough to judge. And they were both excellent teams. Um, it was a lot of fun to watch. Um, I, I will agree with Kate. I think that Berkeley seems really, really strong right now. Uh, their depth has been really impressive to me. Um, I think that, you know, as we always say, when we look at these fall invites, it's so many of these usual suspects, okay, who we thought. I will say that um, I think Virginia, uh, you know, the way that they performed at Duke was obviously very, very impressive. Um, that shouldn't surprise many people. I'll also say that I think Yale um, taking that spot that they got at Gampte, um is worth noting just out of there's been so many question marks around what Yale are we going to see this year? Is it going to be the Yale that went to nationals four times in a row. Is it going to be a broken Yale? Um, and I think that they're clearly showing that they they know what they're doing over there, and and something is still working right. So I think that's definitely encouraging to see for them. Um, but overall, I think that you know, one kind of interesting thing that I've I've noticed about these invites is in a lot of cases you've had West Coast teams coming to East Coast invites that they haven't normally gotten the chance to go to. Um, I haven't noticed. And maybe this is just like the small samples that I've seen, but I haven't noticed a lot of East Coast teams going to West Coast tournaments. And maybe that's just a product of like where most of the tournaments exist anyway. But I do think it's interesting. We're seeing a team like Berkeley um, go to a lot more East Coast tournaments than they would have gone in the past. And I wonder what um, role that's playing in a lot of these, these results that we're starting to see, whether this is a product of they normally stay on the west coast and now they're filtering into the east coast or um whether they are just having a a strong year um but i do think that those the the fact that there are less geographical restrictions has made these invitationals a little more interesting to look at for sure
2: yeah i i I echo that i think it's been fun to see like okay at gamty most teams you know berkeley usually flies over and if there's any other west coast teams they usually fly over but you definitely see other tournaments that have a broader field that maybe we wouldn't ordinarily have. Um, I didn't mention this when I was doing the rundown, but, uh, with the Gamtee results. So first place was Miami, third place was Duke. My A team was at Gamtee. Uh, we went five and one on the first day and we were rewarded with Miami in round three and Duke in round four. So I got to see both of those teams firsthand. Um, this will come as a shock to nobody, but they're very good. Um, Miami was super interesting is that they play very different styles. Uh, and I, I'm not going to give anything away. I'm not going to do anything those teams wouldn't like, but Miami is, is sort of classic Miami in that they're really sharp. Um, they're precise. They're using uh, this medium really effectively in a way that I thought was powerful and clever. And just, uh, they just, they do some things that I thought were really effective in this specific uh, medium of, of, being virtual. Uh, Duke, Similarly does that, but you know, something that I think we started seeing at Trial by Combat and have continued to see, Duke used a lot of technology. They did a really effective job of utilizing the Zoom platform and demonstratives and things like that. Again, I won't get into great detail because I don't want to spoil anything, but I think it was something that we started to see from Seva and that team at Trial by Combat with Sonali's win and that has continued forward uh in the work that they've been doing. It was definitely something I watched and thought, okay, there are some things that I really like that they're doing that I kind of want to adapt and and use for us. Um last thing I'll, I'll mention on these results, I do think it was super interesting to see Wesleyan uh go 7 and 1 and win uh the A division at Yale. Wesleyan is such an interesting team in that they're a perennial power over the last couple of years. And for some reason I think they're technically, are they ranked 25th right now? I think they're like one spot behind us. And like, they weren't at Gamtee. You can make an argument that maybe they should have been at Gamtee. Uh, and I think they're one of the best teams in the country. They easily qualified. They were the first qualif- qualifier out of Lancaster uh back in March. And uh, I don't think they lost a ton of people from that team. Uh, they know what they're doing over there. They play such a, a crisp clean, likable style that I think plays really well. I'm guessing, I've not seen them this year, but I'm guessing that plays really well uh, virtually. So I think we're starting to see the teams that we would expect to do well, continue to do well uh, now that we've reached pretty much the end of the fall
1: season. Your point on teams embracing the format doing really well is, a, is an interesting one. It's definitely something I told my kids from the beginning of the year that people who adapt best to Zoom are going to be the teams that do the best this year. And I personally haven't seen that as much yet this year. It might just be the rounds that I've seen so far, but I haven't seen a lot of standout Zoom demos or cool use of technology or things specifically adapted to Zoom. And I've been wanting to see more of that. So I'm glad that there are teams out there really embracing that format and leaning into it and that it's working for them.
0: I totally agree. I also want to save this because I, we're later on going to talk a little bit about our thoughts on the case as a whole. And I I have some strong thoughts on that, Kate, and I, I really agree with you. Um, I, I'll say the the last kind of thing I, I wanted to mention about this as well um, is going back to those GAMT results. Chicago got second there. And I know that um, for a lot of people – you know, Chicago obviously is a very strong program, but um, when you see the senior class that they had just graduate, um, there obviously were a lot of big names to that class. And uh, it's just good to see that they're clearly still strong and still doing really, really well. The other thing I wanted to mention was I was really excited um, when AMTA announced that they were doing their mini regionals for for fall, uh, basically like their version of a fall invite. Um, and I was excited to see what those results were going to be. Um, and I was hoping we could talk about them on the podcast, but unfortunately none of the three of us had any teams there and we don't know where those results are or exist. So if they exist somewhere, I would love to see them and love to talk about them, but without seeing them, we don't have much of a way to talk about them. I will just say that I, I think it's awesome that Amta did that. I think it's great to give more teams that opportunity to compete in the fall. Um, and I think that especially in an unusual year like this, where, um, a lot of teams aren't hosting invites because of the complications that come with trying to host a virtual invite. um By the way, side note, stop roasting people on mock trial confessions for the way they host invites. This is a difficult enough thing already. like we need to just stop doing that like i we we're, we're better than that um but I do want to just say that I think it's cool that AmTA did that, and I would love to see the results when they get published
2: i I admire the idealism of the sentiment behind. Encouraging people to stop roasting other people on mock trial confession. You know,
0: it's worth saying. They're not going to, but.
2: <laughs> I I agree with you. I think I've talked before in the podcast about how I think Amta's attitude attitude towards invitationals is sort of a have their cake and eat it too type of thing, where they like to say, Oh, we're we're not involved in invitationals, but we use them to make all of our important decisions. Um so I think it would be a good thing for Amta to number one, release those results, but number two, continue to expand uh, in that world uh there's no reason why amta and the resources they have can't put on you know a, a, a Gamte style tournament and also a newbie style tournament right that's it's not that hard to do so uh, i'm looking forward to seeing those results and hearing maybe i guess at next year's board meeting about whether or not this is something that people are considering uh becoming permanent for the future
0: well, I think that we should kind of talk about the elephant in the room. Um, the regionals assignments just recently got posted. Um, and they were interesting to say the least. I can certainly say that in my experience of getting excited about regional, um, announcements and the assignments, um, I was not expecting this. But, uh, essentially what we, we've received so far is Amta has released the, the basic information surrounding what Uh, large regionals will look like. Um, And what I mean by that is that they're going to take these already very large regionals and break them down into smaller regionals that we're more used to seeing. And those will each feed into uh, an orcs that contains all of those teams on that list. So this looks a little more like almost a really, really large orcs that is going to have regionals that feed into it. Um, So I think that it's obviously good that they're posting something so that people can start to get an idea of when they will be competing and start to plan around that. That being said, I think we will probably all agree that there was a lot of question marks left after seeing these posted. And a lot of um, information that we're kind of waiting to see, um, which is fine in some ways, less fine in others. But I'll just kind of open it to you guys. What were your thoughts um, when you first kind of saw these large, huge, massive Regionals and what was your gut reaction to seeing that?
1: I definitely had some mixed feelings. Um, I think the premise of regionals being more balanced because of the lack of geographic constraints this year is a good one overall. Even though, as a Midwest person, I definitely am sad that my comparatively easier orcs than the East Coast (laughs) ones are going to get harder. I, I think it's a really good move to use the the things we gain from this year to make things more equal across the board. That said, I think not knowing what region we're really going to be competing in both uh, in terms of who's in a region and what geographic area judges are going to be recruited from primarily is a difficult thing right now. I think we, we play very differently in different regions. I know there's been a lot of talk about region styles on the podcast before, um, but I I tell my teams to play differently in different regions and not being able to prepare for even what area of the country our judges are going to be from this far in advance is difficult. And not knowing what kind of teams are going to be in our region is also difficult, especially since we don't really have any guidance on when we'll know that more specifically.
2: Yeah. I think I basically agree with everything you just said, Kate. I think the point about judging is absolutely an overlooked one. And candidly, I think it's one that Hampton just doesn't want to deal with. Um, and I also, this may shock people, but I have questions. Um, and there's really two, like, I love the idea of mixing up uh, teams into geographic, non-geographic regionals. I think it's a fantastic idea. It's the only year, hopefully, that we'll get to do that. So we may as well do it. Um, it's I think it's worthwhile. I can tell you, for example, at the Maryland high school level, we usually have eight different judicial circuits. This year, we're mixing them all together because we should. Uh, my two main questions, my first one has to do with the decision to have all of the teams, all four time zones uh, mixed up together. I'm not a big fan of that, in part because of some of the things you were just identifying, Kate, related to judges, and also... I'm not a huge fan of running a West Coast schedule as an East Coast team. Uh, I'm not convinced that it's particularly uh, great for us and and how late in the evening we tend to be getting finished. Uh, But my main point has to do with transparency, which is, I don't know if there are other teams that have issues with that concept. And as far as I'm aware, neither does AMTA because there was no survey sent out asking, is this something that people like? Is this something that people don't like? Um, Is this something the community would be a fan of? It just sort of was announced. This is the way it's going to be and it is written and therefore it is law. And I think that is kind of how AMTA operates on a regular basis because they don't have any means by which they have to be accountable to the larger community. Uh, Not in a nefarious way, just in a, I think they decided this was the way they were going to do it and they didn't really stop to ask any questions about whether the community wanted that or not. Uh, my second question has to do with TPR. Uh, TPR tends to play a fairly heavy role in uh, how these regionals are balanced. And then once we get to orcs, how orcs are balanced and, and now how orcs are organized. If you go all the way back to our episode with Adam Detsky, he talked about how it's not the end all be all, but TPR plays a heavy role. The current TPR is obsolete. It's close to useless um, because by the time we get to uh, regionals, it will be essentially two years old. Are they going to release a new TPR that tries to do their best to balance last year's results, the ones that we have? I have no idea. Neither does anyone, I assume, except for like Jonathan Woodward and maybe a couple other people, uh, because nobody said anything. And if they're not, or if they are, I would like to know those things. So bottom line for me is I'm fine with most of this, but it feels like we're getting like tiny little bits of information and we're missing huge chunks of information that would help me decide whether or not I like the things that are going on.
0: Yeah, I think that I, I totally agree with what both of you have said. I think at the core the geographic issue, um, I love that we're going to be having teams compete from all over the country and not have those issues in the same way we have in the past. Um, I think that it's a fair concern about the timing that Ben mentioned. But I do think that, at least in my mind, I think that the competitive advantage that teams in the Midwest and the West Coast, to a certain extent in some cases, have had over the East Coast is is an important one to combat. And I'm excited that we're kind of spreading out the power. And it, actually, one thing I will say, um, and I, I think, Ben, you're right about the concerns with TPR and about how accurate it is. But I will say that if you assumed that the... Uh, the TPR from 2019, I guess is what we're using. Um, if you're using that as your guidepost and you look at each of these um, super regionals, I'll call them for lack of a better word. Uh, they, they are extremely well balanced. It, it is almost a perfect snake of, of, uh, you know, putting the one and then 16 and then 30 and then 17 and 32 um, all in one region and kind of ensuring that you have as close to a, uh, the same average TPR across each regional as possible. Um, now, once that gets broken up into smaller divisions, you know, we'll, we'll see if that holds true. My guess is that it will. Um, but I think that's really cool. I think that's really nice that we're able to have that really true uh, TPR. And I think that, Ben, you bring up a good point that, you know, how accurate will this be with it being two years old? But I think because there is no other metric we have, I think that this is Amta using what they have available to them. Um, there is no real fair. And I say fair as in, uh, you know, practical way for us to evaluate how good teams are this year without hosting extra regionals ahead of time. Um, Sure, we can look at imitational results, but then you're going to have teams complaining that they don't stack. You're going to have teams complaining that they didn't get to go to this regional or the earth, this imitation or that imitational. There are tons of issues with using that. And I think that TPR, what we have found is that on the whole, it is usually a pretty good predictor. There's often one or two Cinderella teams and there are often one or two teams that, uh, you know, don't do as well as we expected. But on the whole, it's usually a pretty good predictor of strength. And as such, I think that these regionals will probably be more balanced than we've seen in the past. Um, that doesn't necessarily dissuade from the concerns that you guys have both brought up, but I do think that that is kind of a cool thing that we're going to get this year.
1: What would your thoughts be on using regionals data from last year? I know that's something AMTA doesn't usually do, and I don't know if they would ever consider doing that, but it's the only data there that exists of all the teams from last year, and it's better than no data at all, at least in my opinion. Um, so. What if Ampta used regionals data, incorporated that into TPR in some like smaller weighted thing and helped distribute TPR by that?
2: I'll say this. I like it because of how it would impact the second tier. Um, Cause that for me, I, I, Drew, I agree with everything you just said. Um, and I'm not super concerned about at the top tier, but Kate, I like that idea because I think it will help us factor in like most of the teams in the top 50 tpr probably won between five and a half and eight ballots at regionals so they probably maybe will shuffle a little bit but there wouldn't be a ton of movement there although it would address something like cornell who i believe is currently still ranked like third in the country and they did not field a team at regionals last year or okay fifth, but they're they're in the top five and again i i I'm sure they're going to have a pretty decent team this year. You know, Cornell, I'm sure we'll bounce back eventually, but they didn't field a team last year. Um, but it'll help teams like 50 to 150. Most of them probably moved on, but plenty of them didn't. And TPR can get adjusted a little bit uh, based on regionals results to help balance those teams out a little bit so that the second chunk of teams at each regional, right? If you say, okay, if there's 30 regionals and you say, okay, I'm going to take two teams, one team from the top 30 and one team from... 31 through 60, and put each one in a regional, how you're going to decide how tough that regional is is the rest of that field. And I think regional's data from last year is the best data we have to help figure that out as much as possible.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll say that I I think that it's a really good point, Kate, and it's something that they certainly could use. And I agree with Ben that it would probably help us to sort kind of the lower half of TPR a little bit better. Um, I guess that the, the issue that I run into is that regional results are often, at least in my opinion, really not reflective of the strength of, of various teams because of the nature of power protection and because of the nature of how the gap between the top of a regional and the bottom of a regional typically is. Um, and I, I think that CS plays such a heavy role in my perception of how a team did at regionals that to look purely at the wins um, doesn't feel like a, it doesn't feel to me like the same type of evaluative measure as it is at the orcs level. That being said, I agree that it's better than having nothing. And it would definitely be nice for them to add and do. Um, one thing I did want to, to mention about these regionals, though, on a slightly different note, is that I, I have some concerns, you know, Ben, you brought up all these like questions that we're left with, and I, I have the same reaction, in that we definitely have had fewer teams register this year than we did in past years, and it's a product of, you know, teams not feeling as many, you know, the, the whether it's the virtual format, whatever it might be, there are fewer teams that are registered. And I'm curious about how that will affect um, the size of regionals and orcs. Uh, obviously, a hot topic that we've had in the past couple of years is this whole moving to nine orcs. I will say that based on looking at these assignments, it looks to me like they're only doing eight orcs, um, but you know, how many bids are we going to have from each regional to each orcs? You know, how large are those orcs going to be this year? I just feel like there are all these questions I have that haven't yet been answered, and I would hope that we get to see those answers as soon as possible because, again, it's not that I think anyone changes their calculus for how they're going to prepare or do anything like that based on how many bids their regional is going to have. But I think that clearly, as we've said, whether it's the the specific region that you're going to be competing in, what other teams are going to be competing against, there are a lot of things that go into this. And I think it's fair for teams to want to have some answers to these questions that they have. And while I think it's good to give some information, I also think that it's important to give as much information as possible. And To a certain extent, even if Ampta says, we don't know what we're going to do yet, these are the couple of options we're thinking about. What are your thoughts? Like, I think that that would be something really meaningful that they could do if they haven't made a decision. And if they have made a decision, just tell us. Like, I I think that at the end of the day, people will maybe grumble for a little bit, but we'll be okay in the long run as long as we know and have some heads up. Where people get upset and where people stay upset is when they don't know and they're not told until – to it. Kate, since you brought it up, do you have any thoughts on using
2: um, TPR, using regionals results from last year as, as TPR?
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with the thoughts on it's not ideal, but it's better than no data at all. Um, I am honestly a proponent of the idea of incorporating regionals results in the Orcs, uh TPR use anyway. I think it's Last year we had some weird results such as like a team that went 8-0 at our at Northwestern's regionals was a D bracket team for orcs, which is just a weird situation. And it clearly like isn't reflective of how that team's actually doing this year. So I, I'm a proponent of using regionals data more anyways. I think this year, especially since we have no orcs data from last year for half the teams, it would be a good year to try incorporating regionals data and see how that actually impacts things.
2: Yeah, it's, that's a super interesting point. And I, I think several episodes ago, we discussed, I remember at last year's board meeting, not the 2020, but the 2019 board meeting, the analytics committee had a discussion about the possibility of incorporating or designing like a TPR plus that essentially somehow adjusts your TPR for your regionals, uh, performance against your CS, um, in a way that maybe doesn't penalize you, but could reward you if you, had a great regional with a really tough CS, which like you said, could help move that eight and no team. They might not move to the B bracket, but maybe they'd move to the C bracket and that kind of balances things out. So yeah, I, I guess my, my prevailing thought on all of this is I think the thing, cause I've, I've started by complaining about a lot of this, but I think that Amta is showing flexibility and creativity in a lot of ways. And I hope that continues. I hope that they look at this and go, okay, as long as we communicate with people this year, we can try things that are different. Because Drew, what, what you were just saying, I mean, I don't mean to beat a dead horse here, but send a survey. Guys, before you make big systemic changes to what we're used to, ask. Ask what people want you to do. Get their opinions. Uh, I know there were surveys that happened months and months and months ago, but most of those were like pre-pandemic and, and just didn't have a lot to do with what we're dealing with now. But I I agree with what you were just saying, Kate. And I think that hopefully we continue to see more information get released. uh, So we know exactly what's going on. I mean, it's kind of weird, right? That they released all of these like regional weekend assignments, but we don't even know who's hosting. I can tell you as a prospective host, we just got information like a week or two ago about host responsibilities. And like, there's like two different tiers of hosts this year and, uh, you can apply to be one or the other. So that process is still being filtered through again, totally fine. We're, we're writing all of these rules as we go, but I hope that soon Amta will nail all that stuff down so that teams can start to get divided into their individual regionals and kind of start the process
0: of adjusting from there. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with what's been said. Um, in the spirit of kind of moving us along, I do want to kind of talk a little bit about the case in general. Um, I think that we're probably this is probably the last uh, conversation we're going to be having about the case before we get our our first big round of case, or I guess this is the second round of case changes, but um, our our main big December case changes that we usually come to expect. Um, I will say just from what I have seen to start this off, I think that the same concerns I had a few weeks ago have persisted in that I still think this feels like a criminal case that is being tried to force itself into a civil case format. I think that the defense arguments mostly sound like reasonable doubt arguments that are being forced to be turned into preponderance arguments, and that usually doesn't end up very well for the defense. Um, I think it's overwhelmingly P-biased, and I am excited to see what changes AMTA comes up with, but I think that this is not the same bias that I usually see or that I usually feel with cases where I would say, oh, over time, the defense will overcome this. The defense will figure out creative ways to defend itself. I, I'm i just, I've seen enough top teams go to know that I feel strongly that it needs work. So I'll throw it to you guys. What, what do you think, Kate? How's your thoughts on the case so far?
1: I, I have mixed feelings on the case. It's not my my favorite I've ever seen, but I also don't hate it. Um, on a, on a personal level, I tend to prefer cases that are more about what things mean and how the law applies than which eyewitness do you believe. And I think the negligence case has some of that, but the battery case doesn't as much. And it's not the main focus of the case. I think I definitely agree on the bias point. Uh, just anecdotally, Northwestern at Gampty, Our P side went six and O and our D side went O five and one. And it just, it felt very reflective of the fact that this is the most P bias case that I at least personally have seen in my time in AMTA uh, cases. So I, I think it's a case that has a lot of potential. And I think there's a lot of things that I want to see that I haven't seen yet for people doing things with, like, I think there's more to be done with this case than I've seen people do yet. I think there's a lot of potential with the swing experts that I haven't really seen any use of. I think there's a lot of potential with the defendant in a battery case that I haven't seen a lot of range on. But I think there are enough issues making the case difficult, especially with the bias, that I'm really excited to see what the case changes are and whether they make it more open to do cool things.
2: Yeah. My thoughts on this case, I think similar to yours Kate are a little mixed um it is a p-biased case um I haven't independently verified these numbers myself but there's a user on impeachments called uh Epic Rewind who's been keeping track of uh the balance for the case and it seems like almost all tournaments are showing some degree of p-bias at at best a tournament is is close to 50 50 but like the one that's interesting to me is gamty was according to this 59.2 percent p um, which obviously you've got all top teams there tobago road it says here was 57.8 and again there are plenty of tournaments where it's it's playing as a balanced case but you know in in how you know what we mentioned earlier about the defense improving you know if the case is playing perfectly balanced right now my understanding is that's not exactly what AMTA is going for. They're going for a slight P bias, um, not a fairly significant P bias that we've seen so far. Uh, I think my one other thought, I actually am slightly different than UK, and that I tend to prefer cases that are a little bit less about like application of the law and a little bit more about like, how do you creatively, uh use the eyewitnesses you want people to believe and and attack the ones you want people not to believe uh but i just haven't i feel like that's sort of the goal of this case but especially in the battery side of things but i feel like i'm not seeing it done especially effectively i think it's becoming a little bit formulaic which i remember when we talked to my girlfriend he talked about some of the decisions they made were try to to try to avoid some of the criticisms from two years ago with Kozak, with it being formulaic. I'm not sure that they were successful in that effort based on what I've seen so far. I've seen lots of different witness calls, but I think people are doing a lot of similar things uh, with the witness calls that we're seeing. And, and the one reaction I will have to that is I do wonder how much the, I mean, what did we lose about three and a half to four weeks on the front end that we usually have with this case. And I mean, I think you could make an argument that we're about three to four weeks behind in our development of this case as a community than maybe we normally would be. Those those weeks really matter. You know, this year we had five weeks between when we got our hands on the case, we meaning UMBC, and when we competed for the first time. Usually we have two months. Uh And that's a pretty significant difference. So I will be interested to see. I have some other thoughts on... Uh, one specific aspect of this case that i'll stop i'll stop rambling about for now but i will be interested to see how this case evolves and i'm concerned about how that p bias is going to be reflected in case changes and whether or not we have enough information to successfully put out case changes that are going to produce a balanced case for regionals
1: I've got to say, as a as a quarter system school, I've got to say that it was satisfying this year to watch everyone else have the same time <laughs> limits that we usually struggle with. We we often have three weeks between getting the case in our first tournament. This year we had two weeks, so it was a little a little more. We were a little vindicated to see everyone else also have to deal with the time constraints. But I definitely agree that overall it feels like the community hasn't really developed the case as much as we would usually by this point.
0: You know, the thing that to me stuck out that you mentioned, Ben, that I've actually feel like I've observed a lot, too, is there are a ton of different witnesses you can call. And I don't think I've seen a single case. And I've seen a couple now um, that have had the same calls, but it always feels to me like the same thing. Like, I feel like there are so many different witnesses that all are essentially just getting out a different type of hearsay, like it's all the same stuff just said slightly differently. And I have a slightly different relation to this person, but like, I think that it's so much of just, okay, do you believe all this horrible hearsay that the defendant said, um, do you believe that that was enough that they would have have committed this horrible act? Um, and I think that that is starting to wear a little bit tiresome of just like, okay, it's the same thing over and over again. And I think that, the number of witnesses can sometimes create really different trials where you have an almost entirely different trial based on the call and based on what gets discussed. But I just feel like I'm not really getting that as much this year. Um, And I, I will say that one of the other issues that I'm really still having with the case is the time constraints. Um, Kate, you mentioned a while back that you noticed a lot of teams weren't utilizing the technology or, um or making use of this virtual uh format and one of the things that sticks out to me is that i think a lot of it has to do with the lack of time there's just this fear of if i try to enter an exhibit or even just pull up an exhibit that's time i'm burning that i may not be able to get to say all these other things i don't know whether that's the calculus the teams have been using but that would be my guess as to at least some of why we haven't seen as much and I know I mentioned it before, but I don't like that. I think that we should do more evidence-based arguments. And I don't love when it's just nonstop, just flood me with all this horrible hearsay the defendant has said, you know, don't you believe they would do an awful thing? Um, Which, yeah, sure I do, but I just wish that there was more evidence behind it and we spent more time with that. And I think that the the timing constricts that a lot.
1: I will say I have a bit of a different opinion on time limits than I think you two both do. Um I when they first announced them, I was really against the changes and very up in arms against the reduced time, but I've actually kind of eaten my words a little bit on that, especially from a judging and spectating perspective versus a coaching perspective. I I do feel like trials are really long, even just judging and watching them. Like even though it's two and a half hours instead of three, they're exhausting to watch and sit through and I don't know if it makes that much of a difference to have a half hour, but I know that like by the end of some trials, I would not want to see another half hour. And I, I kind of buy the time limit adjustments for Zoom trials at this point. I definitely like them for statements. I think seven minute closings are often better than nine minute closings. Um, and I, I see the limitations that are happening because of crosses. And I haven't been in the weeds and cutting crosses enough as a coach to see that side of it as much. But I do think as a spectator or as a judge, I understand why the time limits are shortened and I kind of agree with it at this point in the season.
2: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I actually agree with that sentiment. Um, having, I mean, now watched many trials this year and, and it, it can be quite exhausting and, and film review is, is exhausting this year too. Uh, I, I will say though, I think the cross thing is a big issue. I think having now watched some pretty high level rounds, like, it it just, you can't do certain things that you used to be able to do on cross and it forces you, I mean, look, part of it is it just forces you to go for less stuff. Um, but I'm not convinced that we, I am convinced and concerned that the unfortunate byproduct of a successful to some degree change is that we're doing what we often do with scoring. Where we give like a, a really broad overview of, okay, this is how you should score. We, we kind of tell the judges, well, this, this is good. This is bad. We don't even really say that to the judges. And what we should be doing is saying, Hey, and I said this on our last episode, I think this year, especially advocate witnesses, bad. You should score them down. We consider that cheating. Because this year it should be cheating. And and I'm not saying you can't add information to your answer, but when you deliberately refuse to answer multiple questions in a row, which I have seen several times this year and rounds I've judged and in rounds that my team has competed against, and and I'm not excluding my team from this. I don't teach them to do this, but some students I think have thought, oh, that the time is dwindling down and I'm going to try to screw with the other team. Uh, we as an organization don't guide our judges in what we consider to be a bad thing um you know we don't even think in a regular year we don't even tell our judges hey uh, midlands is a standing jurisdiction um you know like i know a lot of people add that into their judges presentation i do uh, it's not in there technically and so some judges out there are like oh you sat and used notes that's how real lawyers do it and it's crazy that we don't give that instruction to our judges so in this case if we're going to continue these time limits And we know that the primary issue with the time limits is cross. We need to be adapting how we instruct judges so that witnesses who cause you to burn a ton of cross time are penalized and you don't, you know, as the advocate who had a two point cross that was 15 questions and you couldn't get it in in the six minutes you had left because of the witness. I don't know. I, I I just, I grow frustrated sometimes with how we choose to instruct our judges and I hope that,
0: um, the time limits maybe bring about uh, a change on that front. You know, Kate, it's interesting that you mentioned as a spectator and as a judge, your perspective, because that's been my experience um, entirely this year. I have done next to no coaching of any sort. um, And my experience has all been just kind of watching trials. And I will say that I, maybe it's just me and maybe it's that I just miss mock trial. And I've also been lucky that I've seen mostly very, very high level rounds but I definitely haven't felt tired of watching them. I feel like I really enjoy watching them. Um, I judge because I like judging. I think it's a lot of fun to do. And I usually don't get very tired of the case. Um, the thing that's more exhausting to me has definitely been the, the fact that I feel like the arguments that are being made aren't very creative and aren't very interesting to me. But I, I usually enjoy listening to the trial. I'm just always kind of like, Ooh, like I was kind of excited to see this team go and was thinking maybe they're going to be the one that has a really cool defense idea or does the prosecution in a kind of a unique and interesting way. Um, and, or plaintiff, but I, I just, I guess I still haven't really seen that yet. Um, and so that's what I find more, I'm not gonna say tiring, but what I wish I saw more of as a spectator and as a judge Um, But I actually I haven't found like I would probably be fine with 30 more minutes of trial just because I love watching and I enjoy it. Um, But I definitely can see that that's not for everyone and that that's definitely me being biased by missing this activity and living vicariously through the students that are competing in the moment.
2: Let me let me ask you guys really quick, because this is something as we sort of move towards wrapping up that I'm intrigued by just other people's thoughts on, which is. Uh, how people are choosing to present themselves in this virtual format. We had two rounds in a row at Gamtee where we had two different judges say emphatically, without a doubt, 100%, you should do it this way. And it was 100% opposite, you know, what they were saying, because of course it's mock trial. So what else would it be? Um, So like sitting versus standing, depending on what element you're doing, um, ways that students are uh, choosing to present themselves on screen. Uh, What have you guys seen and what do you prefer? What do you like, what do you think is um, maybe evolving as the norm? Like, I I don't know if there really is a norm yet. I'm just curious for sort of the panel's thoughts on that topic.
1: So I will say, this is the thing that I wish after would give more guidance on specifically not scoring on whether students are sitting or standing. Um, I think there's definitely times when that's limited based on the person's living environment and ability to have a nice background or space they have. Um, I know my, my brother who's competing for a team is living at home this year and has very little space in which to do mock trial, and he really only has one option. So a judge saying, you should do it this other way, and I scored you down for it, is kind of overlooking that. That could be a, a unbreakable limitation for some people. Um, But I'd I'd say there are also like, I I personally like standing for statements, sitting for directs, and I don't have strong opinions on crosses, Um, but I I firmly believe people shouldn't be penalized one way or the other for any of that.
0: Yeah, I think that my perspective on it, uh, I think similarly to Kate, I think you should definitely stand for statements. Um, I think Kate's point about, you know, being aware that, you know, some people are limited in what their backgrounds look like and what they are is totally valid um i think standing for statements is good i i think if you're de- if you're in question of it and you can stand and your whole team can stand i would say standing is better than sitting in general but i also think that if even one member of your team has some reason why standing is going to present difficulties for them to get a camera that looks good or just that's going to you know make the background look worse I would then just go to sitting for for, uh, for direct and, and cross, sure, why not? Um, but I think that when you can stand, probably better. I will also say that just on this note of um, evaluating people based on backgrounds, I'm curious whether AMTA will do anything about virtual backgrounds and whether people are allowed to use them or not. I feel like Zoom has gotten very good and not perfect, but gotten good at improving virtual backgrounds. Um, And I wonder if it will ever reach a point where it is good enough that we could just say, you're required to all use this exact virtual background and everyone's background is exactly the same. So you take that out of the equation a little bit. Um I don't know if that would happen, but I would kind of be intrigued to see if something like that happened. So I wonder, you know, to again, pose something to the group. What, what do you guys think about virtual backgrounds too, in addition to this question of uh, standing and sitting?
1: I kind of feel like backgrounds this year are the new form of costuming in a lot of ways. Uh, like going in opposition to the point I just made, I think when you have the opportunity to do something with your background, it can be really fun. Uh, I know a couple of the Northwestern people have specific things in their background that relate to the witness they're portraying. And it's a cool touch. I think it's it's nice. I don't think it should increase your score, but it's the same way. Like, I don't think a, a police officer's outfit should increase your score, but it's still a fun touch when we can compete in person. Um, so I'm kind of a proponent of do what you can with backgrounds, but just don't score down for it. I, I don't have a strong opinion on whether people should use virtual backgrounds, but I don't love it being required.
2: Yeah, I, I'm. it's an interesting thought. And <laughs> Kate, I had to laugh when you said, you know, this might go against the thought I, I had a moment ago, because I think that makes you an official member of the podcast. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Well, let me, let me say this really quick to, um, something you were saying, Kate, about like the Amp to giving guidance on sitting versus standing. I, I really agree with that. Uh, I can, I'll say this because anyone who plays us knows this. We've worked really hard and spent a fair amount of money as a program to give the students what they need to be able to stand. When they present, uh, for statements and examinations, not for objections, not for quicker things, but for directs, crosses and statements. My personal belief is to the extent possible, this should be mock trial. Um, and so like in real life, when we do mock trial, you stand up. And so, and, and again, I do not believe that teams who choose to sit should be penalized. Uh, but I think there have been rounds where we've benefited from. Sort of having the additional ability to emote and move, even just a little bit, that sort of brings us back to some degree of normality in this activity. Uh, but I think there's a strong counter argument to be made that maybe it looks a little bit silly. And we've had attorneys say, I've been doing virtual hearings for a couple of months and nobody stands, which is true. That, that's, I've been doing that and, and that's true. So I really agree with what you were saying, Kate, about AMTA giving us a little bit more guidance on this issue. As for virtual backgrounds, I think a lot of the time they look kind of weird, but I, I sort of have gone, I, I, at the beginning of the season, I was kind of like, we should just not even really allow them. But given that they don't really seem to affect Zoom's stability and, uh, they can provide, you know, maybe a, a person whose background isn't something they necessarily wanted to display for whatever reason. I think that's great that virtual backgrounds can provide that. So. I think... I hope that AMTA doesn't ban them, uh, and I hope that AMTA doesn't try to get, like, too into the weeds on regulating them, which I I don't think that they will.
0: Yeah, I I think that in general, I'm agreeing with a lot of what's been said. I think that we've kind of... I I think that in general, the truth is that, like Ben said earlier, and like we say all the time, like, AMTA should pull people, should find out what people think, and make a decision on it, make a decision on it soon, so... People can start preparing in that way, whether it is with virtual backgrounds, whether it's not, whether it's standing, whether it's sitting, whatever it might be. I think that the problem is that the longer that we wait, the more opinionated and the more set in people's ways they're going to be. And if you're a team that everyone's been sitting the whole year and then AMTA says, oh, you need to stand or you're expected to stand for statements, people can be like, whoa, like, what the heck? I you know that's a huge change for me to make all of a sudden or similarly the team has been standing the whole year and they are told oh no you have to sit that's going to be a big change for them too and I, I definitely think that just the no comment on it is creating this problem of judges feel that you know it should be done one way or the other they may score up score down based on what things that are really outside of a team's control and I think that that's kind of the number one thing that frustrates people the most about mock trial is things that are completely outside of your control that impact your scores. And I think that everything we can do to get rid of that, um, particularly in this virtual world, um, we should try to be doing.
2: Can, uh, so I think we're about to wrap up, but I wanted to bring up one more thing before we finish up, because it's actually something I wanted to follow up on from last week's episode or, or the episode we released a couple weeks ago. And it has to do with teams competing together. Because uh, there's been a lot of discussion on this subject, um, not necessarily because of our episode, but but since we released our last episode. And I wanted to slightly amend, because when we released our last episode, I said, um, this practice should be absolutely 100% banned. Um, and I wanted to, I feel like there's this false dichotomy that's evolved over this issue. And here's all that I'm saying. Um, I understand fully, in fact, because I have two students who are in this position, people who uh, just absolutely cannot compete in their living space and are coming to campus for that express purpose. Uh, and I understand there are some schools that are sort of in bubble type environments or in uh, at least at one point, slightly better situations at this point, the whole country's sort of going to hell on this, but uh, like I, I get it. Every situation is different. Here's my basic point. You know, if, if your team is in a situation where you're all going to compete on campus or you're all going to compete from one space, because that's what you need to do for whatever reason, totally fine. I think it needs to be the type of thing where the rule needs to be one person goes in at a time and everyone else like scatters in the hallway or something like that. Because we've got teams, entire teams competing from one room with multiple people unmasked at one time. And, you know, if people think that I'm just being overly uh involved in other people's business, so be it. But I don't think that's something that I don't think that's something that we should be permitting this year, and I'm not saying that teams can never be in the same room at the same time. I don't think it's a great idea, but I get for some teams it's a necessity, um, depending on their circumstances and and certain student circumstances. Totally fine, 100 shouldn't AMTA shouldn't be involved at that at all. But if you're all going to compete in the same room together and you're all taking off your mask at various points, there's just there's no protection. You're not protecting your teammates in any way there. And I hope that's something that doesn't continue happening and that Amta
0: steps in to not allow to continue happening. And I'll just say on this note, the the notion that it's like, if it is something that is necessary for you to compete, of course, go for it, do it. But there is unequivocally a competitive advantage that you get from being in the same room as other people and being able to talk to them about it. And even in the example that you just gave, Ben, in which people are kind of coming and going from a single room and everyone else out in the hall talking, there is just a, the ease of communication you can have of talking about, okay, well, you know, how am I going to change this, closing that, what am I going to do? How am I going to flip this theme? Um, How are we going to amend this cross, whatever, that you don't, that other people aren't getting to do. And I mean, there's only so much regulating we can do of that. But I just do think that that needs to be, like, no, you can't be doing that. That's not, like, fair. That's not equal to other teams that are all separate across the country, across the globe, wherever. Um, and I, I hope that there's something that comes down about, you know, that's... You, if you are competing in the same space, you should not be communicating uh, to each other, well... I don't know. I, I I mean, I'm saying this and even as I'm saying it, I'm like, well, but then you get into other issues of they should be able to communicate in some way and then it's like, are we really ask them to like sit across from a room and text each other. So that seems ridiculous. But I don't know. I just want there to be some way to to be some semblance of fairness with this because I do think that that feels like a huge competitive advantage. And I don't think that we should be asking people to choose between what's safe and what gives them the best chance of winning.
1: I think it all goes back to what we're saying on the podcast right now doesn't have to be the rules, but it would be nice to have some clarification on the rules, whatever the AMP decides they are.
2: Yeah, I, I basically agree with that. And, and I'll say this as a final thought and then we can wrap up. I'm, when I say these things, I'm not trying to say that AMP is not an incredibly difficult position. We are still making this up as we go along, not because we haven't, as an organization, put in tremendous thought and debate, but just because this is all still very new. Um, and I'm very grateful to the Amta folks for doing the best that they can to, you know, put together in an environment that can be used for competing. I know I have found this fall to be both exhausting and rewarding at the same time. Like sometimes it sucks. Sometimes it really sucks. Um, I miss so much of a normal, regular in-person season. Uh, but at the same time, we get to do this activity that we all love and that's, a really great thing i just say the things i say about teams being in the same room because i think the overwhelming majority of teams are being really safe and really careful and there are a couple teams that aren't and i hope that those teams um are encouraged to change their practices but i think we've kicked around enough issues for now that we can wrap this up uh kate thanks for coming on the podcast it was great to have you it was great to have uh your perspective on everything and uh you know hopefully we can have you back in the future to catch up on things but it was really awesome to get a chance to talk to you
1: thanks so much for inviting me this is a lot of fun
2: thanks again Kate and uh drew i think that'll wrap it up for now we'll i think we were planning to come back in uh, everyone's feeds in a couple weeks we imagine we'll have case changes the next time that we release an episode so i'm looking forward as always to discussing those with you
0: me too me too i can't wait i'm hoping that at least some of our our and our hopes and prayers about the the bias gets attended to but who knows it the folks on the case committee
2: starting with mike of course but but all the way down to the entire committee are great hard-working people and i have no doubt that they're up for the challenge as always to everyone out there thanks for listening it's a pleasure to be with you until next time this has been the mock review with ben and true